you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Russell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out to the masses sometime in 2022. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance. This week, we welcome TV writer and creative slash showrunner of the star show Hightown, Rebecca Cutter. She talks to us about making an indie feature while also navigating her career in TV. After that, we also have another special guest in Donovan Edwards, who made a short film with the Utah Jazz Organization for Black History Month. But first, Ulrich, how, how are you? I am well. I'm doing good. I had a nice weekend, watched the Super Bowl. That was fun. Saw some ridiculous commercials. I couldn't help but love the Arnold one where he plays Zeus. That was pretty amazing. I did not watch not see any of them. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Not by choice. Yeah. Not by choice. <laughs> Let me tell you, I wish I was watching all of them. <laughs> I didn't see them, though. Yeah. Also, was very let down by the Ring of Power trailer that premiered. It was very lame. <laughs> I, lo- I love Lord of the Rings. I'm reading the Lord of the Rings right now, and I'm like, Oh, gosh. Like, why couldn't you made a better trailer? This is like such a tease. It's just, it's like too, it's like teaser, but it's too much of a teaser. You got to give us a little bit more, you know, but I did watch the Nope trailer and that was amazing. Have you heard of this, Liz? I mean, you know I know it's Jordan, but I, you know, I didn't watch it because I wasn't watching the Super Bowl because my son <laughs> wouldn't let me watch the Super Bowl. So I watched Aladdin. <laughs> I watched Aladdin instead of the Super Bowl. Ah, uh, Aladdin. I had not heard of this movie before I saw the trailer. I didn't know, know he was making a movie. I did not know that it was coming. So I was so excited when I was like, oh, no, Jordan made, Peele made a new movie. Oh, shit. I can't wait to see it. I, I really am a huge, get, like everyone in the world, I'm a huge Get Out fan. And I, I also really enjoyed us. And I just think his style is like really, really, really cool. So I can't wait to see it. Fun fact, Us was Colin's first movie in a movie theater. So... Really? I will always remember us because (laughs) (laughs) it's Colin's first movie. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, no, but things are good. The alternate is finally past QC. Oh my God. After so many revisions, we finally got the green light from for international. So this week I am actually going to send off the hard drives. I just need to get the special features together and get the stems for the trailer together, which is like going to be its own challenge because we didn't score the trailer properly. Like I just did it myself. So like what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all the stems that I have from the movie that I used to edit the trailer with. And then I'm going to recreate the stems for the trailer Mm -hmm. by taking the music I added and then dropping the music in the proper channels throughout all the stems and then dropping the sound effects I added through all the stems, you know, and then basically just rebuilding the stems as they need to be for the delivery because the international people are demanding the stems for the trailer. You know, it's just like, I don't know, man. They're just trying to kill me with work. They're like, hey, you know, wait, you know what's, you know, you need to do, you just need to do more work. Wait, but they don't know? know that like one person is doing all the work. They think you have this massive team. So yeah. you feel targeted, but really it's because you're doing all the work. Because I don't have the money for, no. a, for like a post-production house to do this for me, which, you know, would cost a lot of money. But yeah, but no, things are good. How are you, Liz? What's going on with you? I always am like, as soon as you, right before you ask that question, I'm always like, what am I supposed to talk about? What is going on? We released Lena today, but we talked about that on the show last week. 
but it's been really nice to kind of revisit that. And I realized today that it's the first film I made that isn't a comedy. I've never not made a comedy. And I didn't even realize that until two years after we made it, that it's my first (laughs) (laughs) non-comedy, which is weird to acknowledge in myself. Other than that, we, I don't even know whether to say this out loud, but I have secured a small amount of development funding for one of my projects. And I don't want to jinx it. And it's really, really, really minuscule right now, but there may be more. And I'm in... I'm in a little bit of shock that we are managing to do this. So, wow. Yeah. So that's what's going on with me right now is that I'm making just a little, a few steps forward on my projects. And that is exciting. But in challenging news, we still haven't, the horror film I'm writing with Amy, we are still outlining. We've been outlining for like two months. (laughs) We wrote five drafts of the script. We weren't happy. We decided to just throw it out and we've been outlining and now twice a week we just talk about the outline. So I'm just just like raring to have something to show people. I don't know. I have so many questions. Oh my God. <laughs> well, first question is for the one that you threw the script away and you're doing an outline, do you feel like you're going to bring any scenes or pieces of that script back into the new script or is it yeah. going to be completely rewritten? The characters are the exact same. Like we all, we know we love the characters and then we also, the opening scene is going to be very similar. We have a, we start with a slumber party, which we have not lost. But what we realized is I was being too careful about witchcraft and I was being mm. so worried about being respectful and authentic and true to life. And I really, and I, it didn't make sense to me. So it was like, it blocked me completely. So what Amy and I did, and all credit to Amy, is she kept on bringing up the movie Suspiria. And she's like, look, Suspiria is witchcraft, but it's weird as hell. And also it pulls from like very cool, abstract art house stylized elements. We just kept thinking like, we don't want this to turn into an episode of Buffy. We want it to ha- have some heft to it. And so Suspiria has become our guiding light because it's zany and strange, but it's still like respected and has like a level of dignity to it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's what is helping us get through this new pass is, is to like look to Italian, you know, to, to look to Dario Argento. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. And then the other question I had was about your, your feature that you have funding for. You had a little, you have a little funding for. A little bit. Is it like, like of the ones you're attached to, like, is it the longest road to being yes. financed? Or? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's the one with the biggest budget that like definitely not one person is going to come in and fund this. Yeah. And right. I, I'll speak vaguely because I really don't want to jinx anything, but I met someone who approached me saying that he has a development fund. And I've been talking to him about a lot of my projects. And today he committed to enough money to bring on, I also don't want to reference who this is, but a, a consultant slash lawyer in indie film who helps figure out the value of cast attachments and help you put a package together outside of the agencies. Wow. So we have Amazing. enough money to hire her at this point. Wow. But that doesn't mean we have like enough money to like do anything other than that. That was my question was like, what are you going to use the money for? Like, is it just going to be like the first like, you know, piece that like you built that you start building on or is it actually money that you're going to spend? sounds like all money you're going to spend, right? We're spending for this consultant who's going to help us build this package 
she's got relationships with sales companies. She operates sometimes as a sales agent. She has connections to financiers, but it doesn't necessarily, from what I understand, you don't like pay for that relationship. You pay to retain her services as a consultant. And if you're a fit, they might find, she might find opportunities elsewhere. And Hmm. we're going to schedule with her and I'll let everyone know how it goes. And if it's, if it's meaningful, like I want to talk about it. You know what I mean? But I'm being vague about yeah, it right yeah. now because I don't know what, what this is. Right. And then the last question I'll ask about this is, are you using all of the development funds to hire this person or is it just a portion? And then like other bit of that is going to like the main budget. So this guy has a development fund and he's interested in our project, but he's committed nothing. But somehow we ah. convinced him to underwrite the hiring of this. Oh, wow. Okay. I see. Interesting. 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 Yeah. Such stuff I don't know anything about. I know. Me neither. (laughs) Wait, people do what now? They have a person they hire to do this thing? Holy shit. So I'm I'm very excited to hear about it through you. (laughs) It's a long road, but what is a very short road is the road to www.patreon.com slash MMIH (laughs) podcast. And it is our Patreon. It's how we keep this show going. So please support us on Patreon. And what I wanted to also say is that as of right now, season six of the show featuring episodes with Amber Seeley, Terrilyn Shropshire, Joe Bob Briggs, really very like exciting episodes are now behind a paywall and are only available to Patreon patrons. So please become a patron at the $1.99 a month. That's $1.99 a month. And then you get access to all of our shows. Also make sure to check out Jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free music and special effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. They are our sponsor. Also, we like them. They offer customized plans to fit your needs. They focus on working with composers on an exclusive basis. You won't hear those tracks popping up on any other platform. We have a promo code MMIH when you sign up, and that's all caps, MMIH, and you get a 20% discount on your subscription. But without any further delay, here's our chat with Rebecca Cutter. Can you give us the elevator pitch for Hightown? Is there an elevator pitch for Hightown? I generally just say that it is a crime drama that takes place against the backdrop of the opioid epidemic in Cape Cod. Yeah. That's an elevator. And then how many, how, how many days do you shoot an episode roughly? We've been doing nine days. If you can speak to what is the rough budget of either the show or an episode, just to give a sense of scope for our audience. I feel like I'm not supposed to do that, but. <laughs> no one listens to our show. If if digit millions, I can say that. Yeah, millions. This is per episode, but it's no Westworld. Let's put it that way. It's it's a modest show, but. And then, how did you come up with the idea for the show? Kind of a lot of different elements kind of came together all at once. The main character kind of came to me in a burst of inspiration while I was driving. I had an image of, so my father-in-law is a fishery service agent in Cape Cod. So I had an image of a female fishery service agent who's a lesbian, really like sort of hard partying chick magnet in Provincetown, which is the sort of gay Mecca uh, tourist town in Cape Cod. And I had this image of her, the sort of like Don Draper as a woman who's kind of like circling the drain a little bit, doesn't quite realize the party's over. 
And that character was, I was like, oh, I have not seen that on TV before. That's something. I was like, I'll figure out a murder mystery. But the whole thing, Provincetown, I've been going there since I was a child. My father being a fishery service agent, which is her job in the show. Sobriety, like me getting sober. Like all, there's a lot of elements that are, have been in the background for a long time, but the catalyst was the character. Oh my God, I love just hearing writers talk. I don't even know, I don't even know the phrase circling the drain. And now I'm like, what is, what does it mean to circle the drain? And anyway, you know, you just going down. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I get that. That, that, yeah. that makes sense too. <laughs> How long did you spend from this burst of inspiration until the show started airing? What was like the timeline? Oh of gosh, that? so long. So, so long. So I had that idea. I was a writer on another show. I had the idea for this crime drama pilot that I, but I really, for whatever self-esteem issues, whatever, I was like, this will never get me. This is like just for me to have a writing sample to like get me staffed on the next show. So I wrote it totally like on my own, you know, I mean, shared it with like a few friends, but I didn't like develop it with anyone. And then when I, I turned it into my agents at CAA and I was like, this is just to have a sample. And then they were like, no, we think we can sell it. And I was like, oh, really? Okay, cool. And then they sent it out to a bunch of producers and Jerry Bruckheimer TV read it and really loved it and wanted to go out with it with me. So then we went out and like did a little called a drop-off pitch when you already have the script written. You just do like a kind of a 15-minute pitch, like kind of selling yourself and your vision and talking about what the season might be before you give them the script. And Stars bought it in 20... So I started writing it in 2015. They bought it in 2017, but then they ordered a second script from me. And then they ordered the writer's room. And then they finally ordered it to production. So we didn't, it didn't air until 2020. So a long process. Season one aired in 2020. That was a very long answer, but it, not as long as real time. <laughs> and it would have been. <laughs> and then compared to all the other projects you made, how difficult was this one? Oh, this was not difficult at all. And in, Compared to indie filmmaking, this, I mean, I think every project has like its own kind of higher power or like kismet or, you know, whatever thing. But this one always felt like it was under a good sign, you know what I mean? Or under a good star, or whatever. Like it just always the right people came at the right time. The cast was like, it just always from its inception, I can look back and see like all the right people lining up at the right time. And, and, you know, television is very, you know, the trains move on time and like, you know, there's a budget and there's a schedule and it's, it's compared to trying to get something off the ground completely on your own. It's easy. It's not easy when you think of five years of work and, and you are still like trying to like push from the rear all the time to get things to happen faster or get them to spend more money. But like still compared to doing a $50,000 feature, it's easy. Can we contextualize the conversation even more? I mean, I, got to know you because you were making an indie feature. I, I doubt it was 50,000, but y- you can add some color to that. Oh, no, it like literally to. was. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then now you're a showrunner and I know you've, you know, been a staff writer and a bunch of projects. Would you be feel comfortable kind of, it's hard to sum up oneself, but can you, would you be able to give us like a one minute bio for who yeah. you are? I would say I came to LA to go to graduate school and basically film school at USC. I wanted to be a writer director. I fancied myself like, I don't know. I was like, I'd like to be PT Anderson as a girl, you know, essentially. 
my senior thesis or my thesis film for grad school went to Sundance. I got an agent out of that. That was how I developed Besties, which is the feature that I met you on. It was very low budget. And then at that same time, I had landed sort of just as my day job, a showrunner's assistant on a network television program, The Mentalist. And that was very eye-opening. I was actually an assistant while I made Besties. He let me take some time off. And that was my first time working at scripted television. And I, um, I was just like, whoa. And it was like the first season and it was this hit show and it was so exciting. And like the writers had such a great lifestyle and I loved And, you know, it was such a great job. And it was like the first time I was like, oh, TV, like I hadn't really put that together. And at that same time, the TV landscape started to change. I mean, this was like during that time was like when House of Cards came out and like the streamers. And and so I think TV became the place that was doing what indie film had been doing. And so luckily, I kind of came at the right time where that was that transformation was happening in television. And I mean, but even when I wrote Hightown, I was like, there's no way this could get made. It's like way too specific and weird. And then it's like, no, there's like way more specific and more weird things on TV now. So I kind of just switched my focus to TV at that point. So how did it come about that you ended up writing on The Mentalist? Like, was it a combination of the success of your feature and that you were working on the show already? Or like, was it some other factor? Can you just talk about that? So this is a very common trajectory in television writing, which is something called the freelance episode, which is if you're on a staff, your TV writing staff is a very hierarchical thing. There's everyone has a different position and there's different levels. There's also the showrunner's assistant, the writer's assistant who's in the writer's room taking notes. And very often, I don't actually know the WGA like rule about it, but shows are encouraged to give a freelance script out to somebody who is not on the staff. And very often that will go to one of the assistants. So I was actually, I actually worked for him for four seasons before he said, Hey, you want to do the freelance? That was after I had done the feature, but I don't, I certainly wouldn't describe it as a success, the feature anyway. So, I I mean, I think it impressed him that I did that and he he had read the script and thought it was good. So I, I, you know, I think it helped that I was doing these outside things, but ultimately it was just kind of like my turn, but then that went really well. Then he staffed me the next year then I followed that him to Gotham. And then Gotham was where I wrote the script for Hightown. So that was kind of the trajectory there. And I am a little biased because I am in the future world, as is Ulrich. So I hope this, <laughs> this doesn't sound like a biased question. But I mean, are you still keeping a foot, a leg, half a body in the indie future world? Or do you feel like, was there something... I, I don't actually know what happened to Besties. I mean, like, it, it was great. You know, it was a solid film. But I actually don't know like how it was received. So I guess I'm curious if you have a degree of disillusionment from the reaction to that film that plays a part in staying in TV, or if you just love TV, or what is the relationship? I don't have a... Well, first of all, I guess the first part, yes, I still have half a leg in, in that I have a bunch of feature ideas that I would like to write for myself to direct at some point. But... I am disillusioned by the process of making and 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 I take all the blame on myself. Like there was mistakes I made because I was new to it and inexperienced and Or because it's a system that makes absolutely no sense yeah. and is completely and yes. unsustainable yes. And, and chaotic. And sorry. Like, yeah. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> I mean psychologically, like, you know. I was like, oh, I have this opportunity. Like someone's paying this money to make me make this thing. Like I it was all out of fear. Like I was very 
unable to sort of hold on to what was important to me because I was just like, I just have to do anything that they want me to do because so that, but the actual response to it, I mean, it got into, it was, so it went to fantastic fest and then it was on, <laughs> that, that was great. Huge. And it was on, I think it sold, I mean, I never saw a dime, but it went on, it was on, I mean, you could see it on Amazon. I don't think, but I, but now I've searched for it. And I don't even know where it is. I mean, I kind of felt whatever it's a long, it, there, it was, it's disillusioning, I guess you could say it's kind of disappeared into the ether, but it was a great experience. And I learned a lot from it. And I like the movie. I look back and see I could have done a lot of things differently, but that's normal. You, we grow and we change and we get better. But yes, I think I would have a completely different experience now of making an indie feature. First of all, I would try and get like a decent budget. I mean, not decent by real decent standards, but more than $50,000. And I think I know what I'm doing more. And once you have like, you know, an inch of clout, then at least... At least I know now not to do everything out of fear. Like, you know, I can say no to things. So it's a learning process. So I have a very like specific question, but when you went over to Gotham, how did you end up with a producer credit? Was that just because of your relationship with the showrunner or was that, I don't know, like, was there something special you did to get that credit? Like, how does that work? That is a hundred percent a product of, I remember I mentioned all the credit levels in the writer's room. So it's a, it's confusing if you're not in the TV world, but. That's just one of the credits. So the levels are staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer, executive producer. So it doesn't mean that I was a producer. I did something special. That's just one of the writing levels. You're just like on a higher tier in the writer's room, basically. Just move up. I see. It's so interesting. I feel like we've been interviewing a lot of people on TV lately. And it's like, I feel, first of all, like, Like I've missed out on a lot of information (laughs) because all of it is mind blowing to me. But it's just, it's amazing that there's like a real system working for you when you work in TV. Yeah, there's a little bit of structure. I want to go back to something that you said earlier. Like you you mentioned how like, you know, Hightown's easy compared to making your indie feature. But I'm, I'm just curious, like, what does your day look like when you're in the writer's room? Like, is it the classic? thing that we all think of where you're in the writer's room to like midnight every night and like you don't get to see your family and blah 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 or was it really more of a nine to five type of situation that thing of being in the room until midnight i mean i don't want to judge any other showrunners out there but like that's insane that's not necessary (laughs) if you're doing that you're doing it wrong like i mean with the caveat that like if it's a first year show and the network doesn't know what they want and they are constantly like blowing things up and having you start over like sure things can get really hectic and you could end up having to stay late but like if the showrunner knows what the show is and the network agrees with what the show is there is really no reason to be i mean how long can you have a meeting for that's i mean essentially right this is a meeting of people talking about story like beyond eight hours you're not nothing good's gonna happen right so i'm of the firm mind that like people work better when they're not stuck in there forever. So no, I have very, very, very reasonable hours. I won't even tell you what they are because it's almost obscene. But then of course when I'm on we set, want to know. Yeah, I like <laughs> perking up even more. <laughs> well on Zoom, I would say nine to five, ten to five is re- is probably around what it is. Nice. But on Zoom I, I know rooms are shorter because people's attention spans and you find and I think Zoom also you I mean because in the writer's room when it's in person you can get very Obviously, it devolves into like, oh, and did you watch Mad Men last night or whatever? You know, like 
you get distracted on zoom it's harder to get distracted it's i mean just because the nature of like keeping yourself on mute or whatever like it's just you're kind of more on task so i think you can get out you know you can get out of there faster kind of so i'm this i know this sounds like a naive question because it is because i don't know anything about tv you're the showrunner of Hightown, right? You're the executive producer. And the creator, which is... And the creator. Different things. Yes, I'm both. Having spent time as an assistant, as a producer, you know, really working, pre- you know, very intensely on two other shows, and obviously your history and your indie feature, was there a world where you were like, I'm going to redesign this process of writing TV as a showrunner? Were you trying to make changes? Or were you trying to reduce hours from the experiences you had before? Or were you trying to accommodate different things that hadn't been accommodated in the past as the EP? Yes, not entirely. No. I mean, I will say and I'm and I'm lucky in this regard. I and I also worked on another show called Code Black before between Goth and Hightown. I've actually never been in a show that had really crazy hours in the room. I've been lucky with that. But I definitely did try to take you know, like any job, you you try to mimic the people that you think didn't really success or the parts of things they did successfully, and you try to not do the shit that didn't work. So, you know, to me, it's very important to like make the writer's room a safe place. Like you have to be very direct about like what works and doesn't work. You can't like hem and haw and string people along. So, but there's a way to do that kindly so that they're not like shut down and their ideas dry up, you know? And just, yeah, I just think there's a lot, there's just a lot of jerks in Hollywood. So, you know, there's a lot of, and I think that's rightly been starting to be talked about a lot. And, you know, starting with me too, I do think there is a real consciousness about sort of bullies and bad behavior that's not necessarily sexual. But yeah, you know, and when I was coming up, there was, I would also say it was like very gendered and there used to be a lot less women. And now it's just much more expected that the room will be 50% women. And that's not really, but on the shows I came up on, that was, that was not the case at all. So, you know, just being really conscious of those dynamics and trying to hire fairly and then be, you know, a kind leader, I guess. But I had some of those leaders. I'm not saying that everybody I ever worked for was helpful. Please, that is not what I'm saying. (laughs) You talked about the creator role and the showrunner role being separate roles. Can you talk about like what the different responsibilities are between those two roles? Yes. Yeah, so the showrunner is like the head writer, the boss. They are imparting to the director and all the department heads their vision. They may or may not like often the showrunner is the creator. But let's say a staff writer comes up with an idea. They're not going to let them run the whole show in most cases. So they're going to pair them with a more experienced television writer, producer who's been on set. And so that, so, you know, in that case, the creator and the showrunner might be two different people. In my case, I think I wasn't necessarily meant to be the showrunner because I wasn't super experienced, but then, and they did pair me with someone, but then he, as it kind of boiled down, I was able to do that job. And that ended up being my function after all. But I think going into it, I didn't quite know if I was the showrunner or not. Hmm. Being a first-time showrunner and creator, like what were some of the challenges that you saw for yourself, and how did you overcome those challenges as you as you started, you know, taking over your own show? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's just about taking ownership. You know, I came in with the script. Well, actually, with the first two scripts that I had written myself, and I didn't. You know, I'd never been the boss in the writers' room. 
the highest I had been before that was a supervising producer. So I guess I just didn't know if I was going to be able to like guide people or know what needed to happen in the season. But then I felt it just sort of like everything presented itself as it needed to. And I was like, Oh wow. I'm like good at this, you know? So then I think gaining that confidence and then, you know, on set kind of learning it's, you know, kind of learning my role vis-a-vis like the directors and like, you know, letting them have their space, but also making sure that they're following the vision, like that can be challenging. You know, I think I am super grateful for my experience as a director, because I think a showrunner has a lot of duties that are akin to a director that I think if you just came up on TV and you'd never spent any time on a set, you would be very fish out of water. Luckily, you know, I've spent tons of time in post before being a showrunner. And that it's a huge part of your duty as a showrunner. You're the one sitting with the editors. I had spent a huge amount of time on set. So I know how to talk to actors and I know what people are doing in different departments. So that was hugely useful, like a way to speak about production design, a way to speak about costumes, a way to speak about color or lighting, you know, to have a little bit of that under my belt was incredibly useful. But I think it was finding that confidence to know when to step in, when to step back. And I think over the two seasons, I grew a lot in that regard. Oh, and I directed an episode season Right. Two, oh, I want to ask about that. That's that's my next question. It's yeah. because I was so excited to see that you directed an episode and especially hearing right now that, you know, obviously I know that one of your loves is directing. So just having that come full circle. Was that a contractual opportunity where you said I have to direct an episode or is that something that still had to be like bestowed to you in some way? Because it sounds like there's weird politics that are involved. Yeah. You know, I never thought about doing it. And then one of my producers at Jerry Bruckheimer TV said, you know, you should direct. And I was like, oh, I do enough. And she goes, no, this is an opportunity. You have to take it. And then I was like, okay. And I was scared. I didn't, I know I was like, oh, this is where they find out I'm a fraud or like, this is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, all that stuff. But no, they didn't really have to show it that anyone's throat too hard. Just being the showrunner and the creator. And it's kind of... You know, and it's a very well-oiled machine, the show. So I don't think I could have fucked it up too bad, even if I tried. So, but no, it was great. And the actors are so lovely on the show and so supportive and so excited that I was doing it. And it was just a really great experience. Do you, did you get like the bit by the bug? Like now, are you like, I must direct every episode. I want to direct 15 nope. million things. No, 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 no. Cause it's so hard. Like, <laughs> like it's so hard and I don't. A feature, yes. I do, like, I still, that does intrigue me. But to do episodic television, like, I don't know. I mean, I guess there would be appeal. I mean, I don't know. Are you watching Euphoria? No, it's too dark for me. I can't. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the showrunner is directing every episode, and I think he writes oh. every episode. Oh. And, like, my ego would love to be that. But, like, I'm a mom. I got two kids. I don't need to be on set 14 hours a day, every day, all the time. That's not a lifestyle I necessarily want. It's like few, you know, special occasions. Yeah. Yeah. As the as the creator and the showrunner, are you on set at all, or are you more like in the editor in the editor bay, or both? Both. I go back. So we shot season one. We shot in New York, and season two we shot in North Carolina, and I live in LA. So I was back and forth a lot, but no, I was not on set all the time. But it's sort of as much or as little as I want to be, and I try and go spend time with every director. But like, I'm in every location meeting, like I'm approving locations, I'm approving costumes, I'm approving set design, even if I'm not there. So I'm involved in those decisions anyway. 
Yeah, so you're like an integral part of it no matter what. It's just like kind of up to you if you want to make the trip to set or not, you know, depending on the episode, depending on the director, etc. I had a a question about like, you know, having directed your episode, do you prefer collaborating with other directors like on the episodes of your your own show that you're show running and you're the creator of? Or was there something different about doing everything? It was just a, a lot of work. No, there was. It was great doing it myself because I could get all the shots that I thought we needed and prioritize. And I, and I couldn't, you know, I can't, you know, sometimes I go into the editing and I'm like, wait, what? They don't have this? Or like, that was the only performance they got? Or like, you know, I'm like, my mind will be blown. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, but we don't read each other's minds. Like they can't know exactly. So when it's yourself, it's like, you know, and then there were still things I was like, oh, that idiot missed it. And the idiot is me. <laughs> So, but all that, you know, I loved the control element. I loved that. I was like, you know, there were, the bucket really stops here in that situation. And I, and I both love it and hate that, but I also had a really profound respect for what episodic directors do because you're coming in and you have to make the day. And, you know, I saw really firsthand like, oh, you know, if you're trying to make a 12 hour day, you do have to make hard choices. You know, sometimes you're not going to get every shot you want. And I, and I have a new appreciation for like, you're also as a showrunner, it's like, you know, I'm not going to be the one that goes over. So like, you know, cause I know, I know that's going to come out of my song budget later. So it's like, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of the big picture. So like, I, I have a new respect for the negotiation that kind of goes on around that. I want to talk a little bit about what the, what an overall deal is, your relationship with Lionsgate TV. Like, what is all of that? How did it come about and what does it mean? So it basically means they pay you money above and beyond just like my fee for Hightown to make me be exclusive to them. And anything I want to develop goes through them. They would have to be the studio and anything I develop. And they could theoretically, you know... Like if Kai Town was canceled or something, they could put me on another show. I could show run or shepherd somebody else, something like that. So it's essentially a relationship, an exclusivity relationship. And that's comes that comes through your reps, right? They essentially broker that or yeah. how is that? Yeah. So when I first got High Town and we were negotiating the fee, I mean, I guess I don't really know. So first I had an overall deal just with Stars, which is owned by Lionsgate. And then when that one expired, in that time, the two companies had kind of melded more. So then my second overall deal was with Lionscape. But I mean, essentially, it makes sense for them because if, they, if they're just paying you for the show, which is called a show overall, by the way, tongue in cheek, <laughs> you just have a show overall, then I can go out and be like, hey, Netflix, can I make a show with you? And then, okay, now they've lost half my attention, right? So it's a way of you know, making sure they sort of have you. It's a little bit of the old studio system. I was just thinking about that with the contracts with the actors. But you're still free to develop feature work outside of this deal, right? Yes. Okay. That's so interesting. What is the ideal, like, when Hightown ends, hopefully 10 years from now, that it's a long run, you know, it's as an era. What is the ideal situation for you? Is Is it going into the indie feature world or is it, another show or can you tell me what's on the vision board i <laughs> the vision board that's amazing definitely more tv work just because i like it and i and i really like the the long form i love the change over seasons it's pretty amazing i would like to do a feature but i you use the frame like go into the indie feature world like no i would like to make a movie but i don't know that i 
want, I would never like, I don't think I would willingly walk away from TV entirely. I, I love that format now. I guess I want to ask a question about, you know, being a parent and, you know, being a showrunner and working in television, because Liz and I are both parents. And it's something that you think about a lot and you hear about a lot, like, how am I going to make this work, you know, as a parent? But what does it look like for you? Like, are you able to, you know, spend time with your family in between being a showrunner? Or is it really like a tough, like, give and take, depending on if you're in production or in post or whatever? I mean, well, let's see. When I did Besties, I had a one-year-old baby and we shot in my house. And like the AD would be like, keep that baby quiet. My husband's like, how? Like, what do we do? She's crying. Like, it was, I mean, you know, it and I definitely felt like, oh, I mean, I still feel like, and I wish this wasn't true, but like, I do feel like having a big career and having kids, you kind of feel like you're doing both things not as well as you could. Yeah. But like, that's life and that's okay. And I think I do pretty well. You know, my, my kids are older, they're eight and 12. So, I, you know, but I think when I started going away for Hightown, my little one was like five or six. So they miss, you know, when I go away, it's hard and it can cause resentment between the parents because if one's getting stuck with the kids, that's not easy. But I also think my kids admire what I do and it, and, and when I'm here, I'm here. And, you know, the writers from hours are very reasonable. So I'm, you know, I, I make dinner, I serve dinner, I put the kids to bed. So, you know, I'm around enough. You know, I would say my kids would probably say I'm on my phone too much. But I would bring up my phone whether I was working or not because I'm just a phone addict. So, oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's actually pretty ho- hopeful, you know, outlook. You know, as someone who's looking, getting into this world, it's just like, ah, you know, maybe yeah. it's possible. It's definitely possible. I mean, no one, there's no per- perfect parent, you know, and <laughs> and I think a fulfilled parent is probably a happier, better parent. So, so whatever, we're not all going to bake cookies. That's just the way it is. <laughs> I think we need to move to the final five questions. Alric, do you have a last? I, I have one more okay. question. And and we talked about this just slightly, but like, like what, what is your hope for Hightown? Like, is it to run for eight to 10 seasons or is it more like, oh, I want to finish the story, you know, within when the story wants to be finished? Or is it really like, oh, well, the longer it goes, the more successful the show is. So let's just keep it going forever. Like, is there yeah. like some sort of goal or plan there or? A wish or something, or is it just kind of like Forever whatever happens? Forever is a mighty happens. long time to quote Prince, but <laughs> you know, I'll take a lot of seasons. Sure, I think. How do I put this without offending my corporate overlords? Stars is a smaller network, and I think it hasn't necessarily. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen the show, but like, I think it's a really good show, and I don't know that it's found its biggest audience yet. So I want it to be on the air for as long as that takes to have its moment. That being said, it's a very serialized, very character-driven show. I don't think it lends itself to 11 seasons either. You know, like those kind of very personal stories run out of steam eventually because they don't have the engine of like the monster of the week. So some happy sweet spot where everybody gets rich and the stories never the quality never dips. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. All right. So this is the more kind of hippy dippy session where the first question is, what's the first film you made? How do you feel about it now? Oh my God. The first, does it matter? Like any? Yeah. It could be a school project. It could be whatever. That could be my very first school project. 
or like what's the first part. film that you want to talk about that you made it was my second like we had to make a movie every three weeks in my first semester of film school so my second one was like and it was no they couldn't have any dialogue and you had to have no crew if you were doing something, if you were using yourself you could have your friend like press play but you had to set up all the shots so it was my feminist manifesto about gender that I didn't really understand at age 26, but it was like me waking up and I put on my makeup and then I opened the fridge and saw like wig heads in there. And like, <laughs> and it was all like this one song and it was great. I was super like, cause I was super scared coming to film school. Like, I didn't know if I had something to say or like what, if I'd be good at it. And it like really struck a chord with people, but it was like very personal. Like it was me. It was basically the gender is drag. So it was me getting into drag as a woman. So that was kind of the first thing that I was ever really proud of, I guess. And it was very early on, very, very rough, like on a really shitty little camera. But anyway, that was it. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? For TV. Yeah. I don't know if I received it, but I will say the advice I give is, and this is more to writers, but I think it applies to directing as well. Like, what is the story that only you can tell? Why am I uniquely qualified to tell this story? Find that and do that thing rather than like trying to copy or, I mean, we're all copying to a degree, but it's like when I'm scared of something because it feels too personal or something like that's probably the right thing. And every time I've tried to just like follow the marketplace or like, you know, kind of do what everyone else is doing, like it just, the stuff doesn't come out well. It's not. I have nothing against it morally. I just like, it comes out hacky unless I'm like really in there, you know? So I guess stick to the, find that vein that's really you. The corollary, what's the worst advice you've ever received in relation to career, filmmaking, TV, anything of that ilk? I think I was told to make something like something. I was told when I was working on The Mentalist to make a pilot like The Mentalist as a sample. And that was kind of when I learned that like, when I'm just trying to make something because someone said that's like the right thing for me to do, it just didn't come out good. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that I didn't try or I had like an idea that like could work. It's just like my heart wasn't in it, I guess. Do you have a goal as an artist? Like a goal for myself for the future or like in each piece? Either, either way, how are you when I answer it? I mean, I like to try and like, speak to the human condition to some degree, like not, you know, that sounds really lofty, but I don't know. And then I guess for myself, like I want to find like the balance between like ambition for ambition's sake in like doing meaningful work because, you know, you get to a certain level and people start sending you a lot of projects and it's very easy just to say yes, because you just think, well, it's got a ton of irons in the fire and Maybe I'll be Shonda Rhimes one day. And it's like to be very intentional about what I want. Like, do I need to be Shonda Rhimes? No. Would that lifestyle make me happy? Probably not. To separate out just like what's just feeding my ego and what is actually like good work that I can do that will make me feel fulfilled. That's a great answer. If you could go back in time, what would you tell yourself and to reroute things if you wanted to reroute them in some way? I mean, I kind of feel like everything worked out as it was supposed to. So there's not, I mean, I 
I wasted my twenties in a lot of ways. I, I sort of wish I had been more ambitious or like clear on what I wanted earlier, but I also feel like I put in a lot, a lot of good living time. You got into Sundance in your twenties. Sorry. I'm yeah, jumping yeah. in. What? <laughs> I might've been 30 by then, but okay. uh, <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah, but I was a big party girl and I didn't, I didn't believe that I could apply myself and get things. You know what I mean? Like I always would like start at the bottom of things because I really didn't think I deserved more. So I guess I would want to tell my younger self like, hey, you're good at this, like believe in yourself. But I also think none of that time was wasted in retrospect. You know, all of it goes into the, it's all grist for the mill. And last question, is making TV or movies hard? (laughs) Yes, it's hard. Of course it's hard. (laughs) Isn't that the name of your podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's hard. Do you, do you want to elaborate? I mean, it does really speak for itself, but you're welcome to elaborate yeah, yeah, yeah. if you want to. <laughs> I mean, I have so much respect for people who work on the crew. Like, I don't know how you work those hours over the long haul. And I think, honestly, that's part of why I backed off directing. And look, some people, like live for it. You know, I have the, my onset producer is one of my great friends, Ellen, and like, that set is just her world. It's where she's comfortable. She knows everybody's job inside and out and every single thing you could know about production and she's been doing it forever. And like, that's just what you do. But like, man, 14 hours on the soundstage takes a lot out of me at this age. So I don't know. I don't know how people can just crew or director for hire on a show that's just going from show to show to show to show and just those hours, man. I probably sound like an entitled lazy brat, but that's, it's a lot. It's a lot. So my hat's off to people that are willing. If you think it's all glamour and glitz, it's not. It's very, you know, you come home dirty and tired and smelly. Yeah. And cold or hot. As someone who used to be a freelance, (laughs) I, I used to work freelancing crew, you know, granted it was commercials and corporate video mostly, but I did work on a bunch of features and Yeah. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. But it's also exciting too. Yeah. No, and amazing things happen on set. Like you do become a family and I like being there. It's very enjoyable, but I like to come as a little bit of a tourist. The idea of doing that all the time, just all the time, all the time is it's too, it's too hard. Our final question, I guess, is just let people know how they can support you or whether you want them to follow you on Twitter or uh, to watch Hightown, obviously, should be baked into that answer. But how yeah, watch Hightown on the Stars app or Stars, or you can also see it on Hulu and I think maybe not Amazon, but if you have the Stars app through those things. And then what's my Twitter? Yeah, follow me on Twitter at, <laughs> at Rebecca Cutter underscore. There. Nice. That's Amazing. how dedicated I am to Twitter. <laughs> Thank you for doing the show. We really appreciate it. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Ulrich, what do you remember about talking with Rebecca Cutter? That I should move into television and not work in features anymore. <laughs> kind of, kind of, not really, but but kind of. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like kind of an amazing road that she was on, like from, you know, being a writer's assistant in a writer's room to writing on that show in season five or six, I think, of The Mentalist. She said that she was... That was her first episode. And then like being carried on to like the next show from that showrunner to Gotham. And then like, you know, having a higher level up in the show. And that was one of the things because I, I asked her about like, how does she got a co-producer credit on Gotham? And it's all this writer room hierarchy politics stuff that I hadn't, didn't really understand how it works. So it's like, as you rise in the writer's room, you get better credits. 
So it's like if you're like the, you know like whatever three or four from the from the top rider or third place from the top rider, then you get this credit and you get that credit and this other credit. And so she just had gotten a higher level in the writers' room, so she had a better credit. And so it wasn't like she's not like <laughs> doing extra like things to be a co-producer, like other responsibilities. It's like literally she's like doing the same job, but she just gets a better credit. So I don't know. I just that whole thing was really fascinating and. Yeah, it kind of blew my mind. But what about you? What do you remember from the conversation? You're right. I mean, it's like credits are assigned almost arbitrarily in an indie feature, right? It's like, I was, I'm always like, well, they did a lot, but they didn't do as much as my lead producer. So a uh, co-producer sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. you know, it's like, oh, they introduced us to someone, ah, associate producer, that feels appropriate. You know, it's like, right. it's so... Yeah, it's funny. You and I had uh, polar reactions where you were like, I'm attracted to this world of structure and legitimacy. And I'm like, no, it's too structured. It's too (laughs) clear. I don't like it. And I left thinking, I think I sent you a message being like, the more I hear about television, the more I'm drawn to the mystery, the enigma of indie film even more. So I think I'm just a masochist. And you're just like a healthy human being who wants a little structure and compensation for your work. Right. I didn't say I was going to move into television, but I <laughs> would, I would want, I would want to. Yeah. I, I definitely see the appeal, you know, but we've had a lot of guests p- pushing television um, life on us lately. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I'm kind of, kind of like sorry to drink the Kool-Aid a little bit I, enough to, you know, apply for the WB writers workshop in May. Cause you know, Liz, as you pointed out, we completely missed the director's w- workshop. It was due in February and we completely bit. We were like over here, like, yeah, we'll apply. We'll apply. And we're like, oh, we missed it. <laughs> but yeah, no, I still, I, I think like for whatever, how so I've been, th- I've been thinking about this a lot, like for the last couple of years, but like, like no matter how great a TV show is, like, like it's a TV show. There's more. It's great. It's fun. It gives you that kind of excitement. This feeling of excitement, like with the cliffhanger to find out what happens next, what happens next, and it just kind of goes on forever. But like the beauty of a, a movie that's 90 minutes to two hours long and is just one thing and it tells the whole story and it's like one piece of art. There's something so special when that is done perfectly. It is like better than 10 seasons of whatever the fuck show Sopranos. Who cares? Like a great, great movie to me is still better than the best TV show. And that's just, I don't know if I'll ever not feel that way, you know? They serve different functions. I think TV to me is like a vehicle for comfort. You know, it's like I watch it, especially when we used to have like genuine TV, when you were like, turn on the TV and you're watching the same thing as millions of other people at the exact same time. You know, it's like when it wasn't this like weird cloud-based world that we live in. But I thought there was such great comfort in just being like, oh, as a community, we're all experiencing something together in the same temporal space. I think I always talk about this, but like, you know, if I'm sad, I don't really put on a movie. I'll put on like Cheers. You know what I mean? Like, and it will make me feel better to watch Cheers. So I think TV serves as a comfort function for me, whereas film functions in a different way where I feel a little bit more... I don't know. I, I I watch it differently. And maybe that will change in the future. Yeah. I definitely think that they are watched differently. I, I will say that I, I do tend to put on movies like The Avengers or The Matrix or other movies I've seen hundreds of times on sort of in the same way that I put television on, where I just like put it on and it's there to comfort me, you know? Mm. 
But yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. It's like, yeah, if you, you're watching like Seinfeld or The Simpsons or whatever, because. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you, it comforts you and you're probably watching the same episodes that you like. And you're not necessarily watching. You're definitely not watching the new Simpsons <laughs> unless you're crazy. We are. Maybe. I don't we know. We are still watching the new Simpsons. Is it? Is it? Is it good? No, is it good? I haven't no. watched it Every in now years. and then, every now and then there's like one that's half funny, but then you. You know, you think about steamed hams and you think about monorail and you're just like, there's nothing compared to like the, th- mm. what is it, season? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> season three to steamed 11. Hams. Yeah, steamed hams. <laughs> so good. I, Sean introduced me to The Simpsons when we started dating. I hadn't watched it until I was like 25. Ah, uh, so funny. I missed out a lot of great stuff. Yeah, there was definitely a, a part in my relationship with Beth where it was like, we're just watching old Simpsons and some that we'd both watched, some that I'd only watched, some that she hadn't seen, you know, it was like, there was like a little bit of crossover in our Simpsons knowledge, but it was like kind of rediscovering it all, you know, and then like, I think I'd missed most of season three. I hadn't seen those episodes very much, like when I was younger and now, now it's like, we watch season three through 10 and then we just yeah, go that's what we say three, three through to 10. 10 but i think it could be three to 12 to be like yeah there's some really good episodes in 12 i think that's the one with mel gibson which i mean <laughs> whatever you want to say about mel gibson that's a damn good episode of the simpsons so <laughs> anyways we got to get on we got to move on with things we are joined by a very special guest this week donovan edwards from the utah jazz he is a director and a writer and a producer there who like you know does video content for them you know, internally. And he made a film called Sunday Dinner, which he got the Utah Jazz to fund for $20,000. And this man is how old now, you say? 21 years old, this dude. And he got this to happen. And I mean, I definitely didn't make a movie that cost $20,000 when I was 21. It was like six years later by the time I was able to do something like that. (laughs) But yeah, it was a really fun conversation with Donovan. I loved hearing about Like the way that he approached his film, like why he made the movie, what it was for. It's all for Black History Month. It was really cool. I just watched it. I thought it was a really well-made film and really interesting. So yeah, here's our talk with Donovan. So Donovan, thank you so much for joining us today on Making Movies is Hard. Give us a pitch for Sunday Dinner. Dope. Thank you for having me, first and foremost. But yeah, Sunday Dinner is like this. It's really emotional film that, that I wrote that's kind of like super personal to me and like all the other experiences that I've kind of had or seen with my friends. And it's really just simply a story about empathy. And it focuses on like this father and son rekindling stabilization. So we have this main character, Freddie, who's kind of like left for 10 years. And he's kind of using this, this traditional Black moment as like a Sunday dinner to kind of like, you know, bring his family back together and kind of like right his wrongs and make things right with his father. How many days did you shoot? So we shot for two days, two days in a row, but then we had a pre-light day. So technically three days in total. Wait, how many pages? We, we don't normally ask that, but it might be help. There's a six-page script, and then the film right now is, is at like eight minutes, a little over eight minutes. Nice. And if you can say, what was the rough budget for the short? It was 20K, which was, actually, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that, but you know, being transparent as possible, that's what I like to do. <laughs> It was like just enough to get it done, but like not too much to be like the possibilities are endless. You know, we started like fight for that, for that 20K to, to go a long way. So, yeah. How did you come up with the idea? So it's, it's pretty interesting. When I first got to the jazz, I knew that Black History Month was like a point where like I could really flex my creativity and like have almost creative control, so to speak. 
So I knew I, I always wanted to like get the jazz to do a short film, which is a lot easier said than done. But I think I came up with the idea, like the rough idea of like something happening around Sunday dinner, like two hours before we had like our first kickoff meeting to like discuss ideas. And they loved the idea of like Sunday dinner. That's like I said, that's a traditional black thing that we do. And then from that point on, it's just like nailing down that idea. So when I, when I tend to write, it's like, it's like almost like therapy for me. So just like pulling from my own personal experience with my father. And I, and I see this as being like almost like a, an alternative universe of like what could have happened with me and my family or like my, my, my friend's family. So yeah, just definitely pulling from personal experiences. And like, just like, were you pitching against anyone else at the jazz or was it really like your moment to like give them your ideas so they could like, you know, make a movie, like find your movie basically? Yeah, I was, I was definitely pitching towards like the like higher ups in the, in the jazz corporation. So like my bosses and like, there's like tons of people that, that's over me. So my creative director and then like the brand creative and like the VP of marketing and all those people, right? It was my idea that, that I kind of wrote and had from scratch. And then it was kind of like proven to the organization that like, we should really do this. Like, it'll be really dope. And no NBA team has done something like this before. So that's kind of how like the whole process went. How long did you spend working on the film from these meetings, like these early pitch meetings until now? I think the first pitch meeting was November, like late November. And we definitely got started with like Black History Month conversations early because uh, we wanted to do it right. And we're kind of like in this whole rebranding stage and really trying to like make a difference. So yeah, that was like late November. And then I wrote the script in the first couple months of December. All of December was like pre-production as well as January was like all pre-production. And then we actually shot it the last week of January. So not too long ago, we shot it the 29th and the 30th, something crazy. Wow. So I only, I only had like a week to edit, like a week and a half to edit the film. <laughs> oh my God. And then compared to all the other projects you made, how difficult was this one? Oh, that's interesting. There, there's like a lot, it's like a lot of different challenges, I would say, because this is actually only like the second short film that I've made. I've done a lot of commercials, a lot of other videos, but as far as like short films, this is like the second one that I've made. And the first one, it was also during the pandemic. I think that was like 5K budget. I was like strapped for cash. I was pulling cash out of my pockets, barely. My parents were helping. So just like convincing everybody to like help me on like the first one was probably the hardest thing. And then obviously with the first one, I didn't really know what I was doing. So I was just like, you know, as friends and family helping out. So a lot, a lot of sacrifices there. But this one is like, I've been directing for a lot longer time, a lot more experience on set. So I knew what I was doing. So there was no really big issues for production and there was no scary moments during pre-production. It was all just about the writing stage and, and getting that, that story right. Because you have to like, for me, I wanted to write a story that would make the Black community proud. But then also I'm in Utah, so I have to like appease the Utah community and then appease the organization. So just trying to appease three different groups that are really different was probably the biggest challenge. But once I nailed that, it was a pretty smooth, smooth road. We're missing a lot of context, I think, right now, because you work for Utah Jazz and somehow they funded and are supporting this short film. But like, did this come out of like a competition or were you just like, hey, boss, will you fund my short film? Like, yeah. tell us what that <laughs> jump was. Yeah, definitely. So for Black History Month, what we decided on was like this big campaign because most importantly for me and, and a lot of the people that I work with, Black History Month is great, but oftentimes we're like stuck on the past and it's like has to do a lot with trauma. And we really want to focus on the present because there's a lot of, you know, 
influential black figures around us right now and specifically are very we have so many different black experiences that we want to like tap into and show so we kind of rebranded this whole month to be black experience month so the jazz let a number of their black employees tell stories that relate to their black experience everything from films to art pieces we have a show coming up i think by the time this comes out the show would have already happened but yeah just like there's there's a bunch of different content pieces and and from all the different black employees that work here and me being a black employee i was like you know what i want to do a short film i i think that would be cool so then that's how the whole process started and are you the only film that was made for black history month within the jazz or are there other shorts too no, no, this is the only, this is the only short film. Yeah. There's like, like interviews and like documentary style videos, sit down style videos, but yeah, this is the only short film. And then just to follow up on that, like, how did you come up with the budget that you wanted? Did like, did they just say, Hey, this is what we got for you? Or did you come to them and be like, no, like, here's what I need. This is how much we, we need to do it right. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I came up with like a, like a rough budget, like a spec budget of how much I think it would cost. And that was around, I think, like 50K, which was, I was like, yeah, like we could do it. Like with all the other stuff that we've done, like 50K seems reasonable. But for them, it was like, hey, like, you know, we've never done this before. Let's, let's give you like what you need and not like, let's not do too much, which is definitely a good creative limitation for me just trying to restructuring the story and, and trying to find the best story with like the resource that we had. But yeah, the, the first spec budget was like, like 50K. But, but that's because I was like, you know, if we're going to do it, like we, I want to do it big. So I want to get like A-list actors. And like, we had a couple that we were talking with through email and they were excited about it, but we just, we just didn't have the budget for it, but it all worked out. We have, we have some great, great people attached to it for sure. You said something that struck me. So I'm going to press you on it a little bit. You said the first short film you made was during the pandemic. And then by the time you got to this project, you had a lot more experience. Yeah. So is this the second short film project or did you just do a bunch of commercials and industrial things in between? Like, can you tell me a little bit about how the experience gap closed between those two projects and what was the most beneficial to you? Yeah. So when I made my first short film, I was actually back in Ohio because I'm from originally, from, I'm from Ohio. And I was working at this dope production company called Loose Films. And they really inspired me to like take a step at my first short film. And that was just a crazy process in itself. But in that meantime, I was able to do a feature film with them. Um, I, was, I was an assistant editor that got into Tribeca, which is like super cool. And then, yeah, just doing like a bunch of commercials, a bunch of like small videos with like artists in the city and stuff like that. And then once I came here to the jazz, I think I did like seven different directing jobs in like three months, something ridiculous. Like, as soon as I got to like the Utah jazz, they were just like, we got to push out content, go, go, go. And it was like quality content. Cause like they never had somebody like me, a part of their team before. And also this guy named June that I work with, they're really trying to bring that creative agency filmmaker vibe in house. So me and him just being able to like tag team and do a bunch of cool commercials. And like one of the first experiences here that I had directing, I was like, there was media day for, with the players. And I was just like standing next to these like six, five players directing them and trying to like tell them what to do. I'm just like, wow, my life has really changed like ridiculously <laughs> in like a year. <laughs> but, but yeah. So just talk about how you did go about casting. Did you cast locally out of Utah or how did you find the people to be in the movie? Yeah. So based off the budget, we kind of were constricted to like local talent and everybody was local except for our main actor who was, his name is Will, Will Oliver. Great guy. The thing about Utah is like there's not an enormous amount of black people. I think there's like less than 2%. 
Damn. So trying to find, yeah, it's, it's pretty, <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy. Just trying to find black people here in general is hard. And then black people who are, you know, actors or like who have modeling experience or something was super hard. Cause I wanted, you know, people who are part of the LGBT community that were black and actors as well, but trying to find that is like finding a needle in the haystack. So we had to get our main actor from, from Atlanta and he actually flew out and yeah, he made it work. I found him on backstage last minute and he's great. He kills the performance, like literally kills the performance. So yeah. You had two days and a pre-light to do a six page script, which seems like the most ideal timing that one could have. Like, I feel like, like I would love two days to do six pages. To, that sounds so fantastic. Just tell me how wonderful it was, or was it not enough time? Like, just talk no, about it. Was, the it was experience. great. <laughs> yeah, no, just being on set was like one of the best experiences of my life. Luckily, I had like a great producer. Her name is Kate Bishop that made the process so much easier. I didn't have to worry about any of that producer stuff because there's a lot of it to deal with. And, and she she took it like a champ. And she and she was on, on board with it from the very start. And she was like, listen, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. We're going to have to ask for a lot of favors, but we're going to really, you know, put our all into it. So, you know, we, we lined the script and we were just like, listen, I think we could do it in two days. And she's like, all right, like two days, we can do that. But yeah, overall, great experience. A lot of people really like, they made a lot of sacrifices to make this film happen. So I'm like super thankful for that because without all the people on board, this film wouldn't be, this film wouldn't be out right now. Okay, that's wonderful. But I'm going to, I'm going to push even more because what I'm also suggesting is that that's like a luxurious amount of time to have two full days. Like usually you would hear six pages, pages, you'd be like, well, we'll knock it out in one. But you got two days and a pre-light. Was that because of something that you fought for? Or was the original schedule like three, four days and you actually were compromising on two? Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah, no, I think from the very start, when we, once we had like the lock script, my producer was like, yeah, it's going to take two days. So I kind of just trusted her and her guts to be like, yeah, it's going to take two days. And we really wanted to keep the days shorter because we weren't paying the talent or the crew like a lot of money at all. So I feel like we just made, it made more sense to, you know, instead of one like 14 hour day, just break it up into two days. So, yeah. So I'm just curious, like this is kind of like a two part question, but like, like what are your goals for the film? Like what, where, where do you hope to achieve with it? And like where... Like, how do you hope people will, re will react to it? And like, what will it do? Like, are you like hoping it's going to like bo boost you up in your career? Or is it more like we just made this thing that I'm proud of? Like, like, what are you hoping will happen once this hits, you know, the internet? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I try not to get caught up in like my own personal gain from the film because that's not why I really do it. You know, I think for me, every time I think about films, I just think about like what that film could possibly do for a person. And I think that we all have like, our favorite films that, that we love and that we constantly rewatch. And for me, that was like Tron Legacy. I don't know why. I wish I had like a more like, you know, <laughs> better filmy cinema answer. But I just, I really want people to just like watch this film and, you know, maybe they shed a couple tears, but most importantly, like they, they reflect on their own family and how they can kind of like right their wrongs in their own family. And like I said before, I think the film is really about empathy, like understanding people that, that you may like putting yourself in the other people's shoes. And even though you may not agree with them or their decision or the way that they may have acted in the past, you can understand them and respect them. And obviously like the film is, it's an all black cast and it's very soulful. It has this very black soulful feel to it. But I think that that core theme of empathy can be applied to, 
you know, politics or religion or, or literally anything. So, yeah. And the, the second part of the question is like, you know, you as an artist, like being within the jazz, like what are you trying to do? Like through all the little projects that you're creating there, like, like what is your hope to like achieve within the organization? Yeah. I think what I, what I'm super excited about is just like showing the world, like what the jazz are possible of. I think that like, when this hopefully goes out, they're like, whoa, like the jazz did this, like, this is unheard of from an NBA team. And I think it will hopefully open a lot of doors for, for us as an organization. And obviously me as a filmmaker, you know, I think that the end goal for me is obviously to be in Hollywood and to, to, you know, be the next Barry or the next Ryan or, (laughs) but obviously just like, you know, I got to take it one step at a time, but hopefully I answered the question. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. In terms of, this is kind of like Ulrich's question, but, in terms of ownership over this piece of art that you created, you know, it sounds like the Utah Jazz owns it. So what kind of influence did you have? Did you get final cut? Do you get to use this piece? Are you submitting to film festivals? Like, where is the barrier between you and the Utah Jazz in this in this project? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that like we're, we're, we're one. I think that I respect and love this organization so much because they trusted me in this process. You know, it's not easy to trust a 21 year old filmmaker that just came to the organization like five months ago, but they did. And I, and I really applaud that. So I'm not really too concerned about like who owns what and, and if I'm allowed to do this, I think that no matter what happens, we can like come to an agreement with everything. And we definitely want to like submit to film festivals and submit to like Emmy awards and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know if we will qualify for film festivals just because we're, we're already premiering it ourselves. Yeah. But yeah. Some festivals allow it for what it's worth, but a lot of festivals will discount it because it's a publicly uh, performed. Yeah. All right. So I have one more question. So like, you know, you're a 21 year old filmmaker, you work for the jazz. It's like, you know, a major, you know, NBA team. It's like, you know, you don't really get like much bigger than that as far as organizations go, unless maybe you're like at the Lakers or something. But but the question is like for you as a filmmaker, like what is your like process? Because like, obviously this, this short, is of a, a bigger budget and higher level than most 20-year-old filmmakers get. Like, we, the, you know, we don't really get a chance to make a $20,000 film when we're that young normally. Like, usually it takes a while to, to build up that kind of money. So, like, now looking at this as, like, you know, this big achievement and this thing that you're going like, to kind of hit get the splash with, like, you know, coming out as a, as a young filmmaker, like, what are your plans next? Like, what are you trying to do for your next project? Are you jumping into your first feature after this? Are you trying to make some more shorts first? Like what is your like plan for yourself going forward as an artist? Yeah, I definitely want to take it slow. I think I have, I have a lot of confidence in myself as a director, but I'm also not trying to rush it. I think there's something to be said about people that kind of like grow too fast. And I know that I still have a lot to learn and I'm, and I'm super hungry to like learn that kind of stuff. So I definitely want to do probably one more short film, maybe like a year from now, continue to write. I think my biggest thing right now is writing. I'm just like really honing in on that writing stage because if you have a terrible script, it doesn't matter how good of a director you are. This film is going to be subpar. So writing is like my biggest focus right now. And then, yeah, I, I would say like I definitely want to make my first feature before I turn like 24, 25. <laughs> but, you know, you know, if that, if that doesn't happen, then, you know, it wasn't meant to be. But yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely a very ambitious filmmaker. And good. We just laugh. We laugh because we started a little bit later than that. We're not laughing at the goal. We want you to do no, that. That would be it, amazing. It's, it's it's a classic goal, you know, and I, and I think it's like, especially for someone like you, who's already done a lot and, and in such a short amount of time, I feel like it's definitely 
an achievable goal. We, we actually just had a filmmaker on who did that. Like she was like, that was her goal to make her first feature by I think 24, 25. And she did it, you know, and nice. it was a really interesting story. If you haven't listened to that, that episode, you should check it out because she had a lot of reflection that she had after that. Talia Lagasse is the episode. Talia Lagasse, yeah. <laughs> nice, exactly. nice. Nice. That's Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I just didn't want you to think that we were laughing at you. No, no, that would just it, be so horrible. No, it's because it's like it's like this this thing. I mean, we both. I think I I had it. I was trying to hit it before thirty, and then I didn't make it, and then I did it later, and it was totally fine. You know, I don't know what, right. if you had that list too, but it's just sort of a thing that we all do, right? We all set right. these goals for ourselves, and sometimes you make them, and sometimes you don't. But I think like it's totally great to have those goals. But I I loved your answer because like you're you're totally like realistic and. You're not like overly ambitious, although you are, amb- you're still ambitious, but you're right. like, you seem reasonable at the same time, which I think yeah. is awesome. It's always about finding that balance. I realized that like a year ago, I was like, man, I need balance in my life, man. Cause I think the biggest thing for me is like, I get so into a project and I just like, don't eat. I like don't sleep. I work ridiculous hours. I'm like, if I make a feature, like I will literally like kill myself before I could reach the finish line. So it's like, I need to like learn how to like, Eat properly first, work out, do the basics, and then we could tackle the big, the big beast. I'm going to jump to our final questions. The first question is, what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now? Mm, yeah, that was like a year and a half ago. So my first film was Lavender Boy. And I think I, I like it. You know, I like it. I think it was like it was the best film that I could make in that moment. So I think if I try to go back and rewatch, I don't rewatch it, actually. Like I, I could never do that. But it was definitely like a good film that I made in the moment. That was the best film I could make. I think it, it went to film festivals. I think it got eight film festival selections. It won best director for one. But yeah, I think I'm more proud of like the fact that the community that came together to make it. So yeah. Is that movie out? Can people see it? Yeah, it's on Vimeo. It's on Vimeo at, on, my, on my Vimeo page, Jonathan Miles Edwards. I think it's about eight, eight minutes long. So yeah, very similar. Awesome. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Mm, that's a great question. I would probably say, so I have, a, I have a good friend back home. His name is Josh Nowak and this great director, great writer. I actually went to him for like script notes on this, on this short film. And he always gives me the best directing advice just about, you know, being patient and everything. But he was on set for Ava DuVernay's 13th. And he said like, she was the most prepared person in the room. and for some reason that, that that like still sticks in my head to this day. And he has, he has a lot of good gems that he drops like constantly. Like he, I think the biggest thing with Josh is that he, he's always trying to push me to, to like push my creative boundaries. I think the last one that I had, I had a couple of flashbacks and I was starting to go that same route with this film. And he's just always teaching me to just like push my boundaries, do things that I've never done before. And with that, with that piece of advice that he gave about Ava DuVernay and always being like the most prepared. And she had like this big binder of like, notes and she knew everything about everything like she every every aspect of her of her project she knew so that's something that i, I definitely try to like apply to my own life making sure i know i'm not doing everything but i know what's going on and i feel like that's how you get the best film possible is like focusing on those details and staying locked in what's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received oh honestly i don't know what the worst filmmaking advice is because if it's if it's bad advice i just like throw it away immediately and i just don't think about it after that i think probably the one of the stupidest things I've heard is just like slow down and and just like <laughs> slow down in the aspect of just like you know you don't have to do it right now like you don't have to you don't have to, you, you can you can wait like 
three, five years and you'll still be in a good position because you're so young. And for me, I'm just like, no, like I'm, I'm always going to have that ambition to go. And I think for me, it's just like, yeah, just, I feel like I have pretty good intuition. So I I know when to go, when to not, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's that's probably what I would say. Do you have a goal for your career? Yeah, I think my goal, my biggest goal is to just like continue to make films that touch people, which is a pretty simple goal. And I don't, you know, obviously it'd be great to like win all these different awards and Oscars and, but I don't think that's something to really be chased after. And I think that materialistic things don't really make me too happy. I think if I could just like wake up and somebody hits me up and say, Hey, like the film that you made, like really touched my heart. It really like put me in a better mindset. That is like, that's all I need, you know, cause that's, that's why I do it. So. If you could go back in time, what would you tell yourself? What piece of advice would you give yourself? Mm, I would just say, keep going. You're on the right track. Just keep going. It's going to take a while. Be patient. <laughs> be patient. Stay ambitious, but be patient and just keep going. Like you'll, you'll get there one day. Last question. Is making movies hard? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely is. It takes a lot of focus every second. Like I don't think there's any moment where you can really check out and just like get too happy or get too sad. And I think it, it's hard because it, it takes so many different people. But once you get those people, then it's, it's pretty fun. Tell people how they can see the film. Yeah. So right now it'll, it'll be on Vimeo, Twitter, Facebook. It'll be all on like the jazz social channels. Um, and then we're trying to work out other platforms where we can get the film. But I would say just stay tuned to um, the jazz socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And then also I will be posting the film a lot, obviously, too. So my Instagram, which is Donovan Miles. So Liz, what do you remember from our conversation with Donovan? Just how driven he is. And also, I mean, I think you and I talked about it afterwards, but the fact that he said slow down was bad advice. Whereas I feel like slow down is like the best advice you can give someone. (laughs) I mean, like I'm 37, right? So I'm like a whole teenager older than Donovan is, <laughs> but it's, I'm like a whole euphoria cast older than <laughs> But I think it's really important to slow down and think things through and not rush through things at this point in my life. But I guess when you're in your early 20s, you really feel like you have to ride this momentum of like trying to prove yourself. And so brought me back to my early 20s. But I think for me, at least, my perspective changed as I got older. Well, for many years, I felt that I hadn't done enough, that I was, that I had moved too slow. Like when I was making my, my first like big short film at like 26 or whatever, I was like, oh, why did I take so long to do this? Like it's such a long road and like, oh, you know, I'll, well, I'll never make my first feature film at this rate, blah, blah, blah. And then it took me years to realize that like, oh no, like taking my time and doing it the way I did it was right. And it's actually doesn't matter how fast you do things. It's like, you know, you make the movies when it's time for you to make those movies, you know, like there's no rush. There's no like, you know, it's not a race, you know? So he, he's kind of like how I wish I was at 21. <laughs> like I wish I was working for the Utah Jazz and making videos and like, you know, whatever, like, like moving out of my hometown to like do something new. Like I kind of like that was sort of what I wanted for myself and I never happened. So I sort of like see what he's doing and it's like really exciting for me, you know, to watch that. But yeah, I, I do really think that like, yeah, in the end, you know, you do everything at your own pace and you know, it all works out. Yeah, I really hope people get to see Sunday Dinner and I, I'd love to hear what people think of it. You know, it's, it's a very interesting movie. It's, it's kind of different than a lot of movies I've seen. And for some reasons that uh, maybe we won't discuss right now. But yeah, I, I really, I really liked it. And I think that 
it's just really interesting to see someone express themselves, you know, artistically, you know, with like a company behind them like that, to like give them the resources to do what they want to do. Like, because like, it definitely doesn't look like your average short film from a 21 year old because of the production value. God. It's like, it looks fucking sweet. <laughs> Can you imagine you, you know, you're in your early 20s and the place you work for is like, yes, let me fund your film. Yeah. That is... To, com- to convince them. God. I mean, I feel like kudos to Donovan to like get them to do that. He didn't like... When we talked to him, he didn't seem like it was that big of a deal. He's like, yeah, you know, whatever. I just went to the meeting and convinced them and it was great. It's like, dude, like... <laughs> people just don't hand out $20,000. Like, no. like I, I mean, he's too young to know that, that that's not going to happen very often later in his life. But like... But it yeah, might, because he just like, kind of steamrolls, you know what I mean? Like, that's that's like a really cool quality to be oblivious to that being hard, you know? Yeah. I, like, I commend yeah. him for just pushing forward. Yeah, me too. Totally. It's, it's I think it's like a lot, like when you're younger, like you you make these crazy movies, like when you're just, you know, like whatever with your friends or whatever, and you don't think about like how hard it is. And then like, as you get older, you're like, the more you know, it's like the harder it is to like, just go do things. And it's it's fun to see somebody in that moment where they're like, just fucking doing it. And they're like, yeah, whatever. We're going to make this movie. It's going to be great. Oh, I wanted $50,000. Oh, I'll do it for $20,000. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, you know, you can let us know what you think of this movie, Sunday Dinner, by sending us a question, comment, or suggestion, or email of any kind to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. You should also check out the International Screenwriters Association, another one of our sponsors, the ISA. They are an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer. I'm actually reading a script. I just read a script. I'm going to read another script from an ISA writer. I'm actually reading two from two different ISA writers. So <laughs> anyways, they're great. It's been, been fun to explore their writing community a little bit. But they do things like publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, do consultation courses, and they have a top 25 writers list featuring some of their best writers. So you can check out that list and find some some great, great writers there. And you can do that all at www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. So thanks so much to Rebecca for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimuth, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being fucking awesome. And we'll talk to you all next week. All right, preamble over.